that is the weaker brother and the stronger brother, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 12, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Clearly, all right, is this good? Clearly written to believers. We good? Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we're kind of working our way, but maybe bypassing for a moment 2 Corinthians. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians now, chapter 5. And here's the other of the three, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Now he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who are we? Well, let's go back up to verse number 1. For we know, there's we, Paul's obviously including himself, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So who is promised a resurrection body that is eternal and that is a part of the assurance of believers and part of what's to come? Well, believers. So once again, hopefully everyone sees this. Everyone is clear on this. You know, really, it's also a statement that you could make that the New Testament epistles are all really written to believers. Not that you don't have statements directed to unbelievers, but generally speaking, the epistles were written to believers and to churches, so it's almost a foregone conclusion. But just so that you see it clearly in the context, since then he comes, for we must all, verse 10, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So once again, clearly believers. All right, let's go back to our base passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Who are the subjects of the discussion in 1 Corinthians 3? Well, let's go to verse 1. And I, what's the next word? Brethren, verse number 1. So who is in the context? Who is being spoken to? Believers. This is also clear when you come down to verse 8. Paul says this. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And then he says this, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. In verse 7 above, he says, So that neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. So he's obviously talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in blessing the word given to believers some sow some water but God gives the increase and as he writes to the Corinthian church he's talking to people who are the result of his and the ministry of others if that's not clear enough he says in verse 10 according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder I have laid the foundation he tells us other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ so it's obviously um, a reference to people who have trusted Christ as Savior. Now, if it's still not clear enough, look at verse 15, where he says this, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be, what's that word? Saved. So we're obviously talking to believers, right? Unsaved people aren't saved. Not to say the obvious. Verse 16, he also says the people that he is writing to are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the temple of God dwelleth in you, or that the, the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, hopefully, I didn't labor that too much, but I think it's really important for us. Sometimes we just kind of know things because we've heard them, and it's really important for us to know things not just because we've heard them, but because we've seen them with our eyes and 
seen them for ourselves. So I thought this was a reasonable exercise for us tonight. I might say before I leave this thought of who, do you know the lost do not even appear until the great white throne judgment? They are not even in play. They have not even been resurrected until after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And we're told this, they are not even resurrected yet. What we talked about this morning, the Bible refers to as the resurrection unto life or the first resurrection. In Revelation chapter 20, I'm just going to read these verses for you, verses 5 and 6. He clarifies this. He says, but the rest of the dead, all of those who are not a part of the first resurrection, lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So strictly speaking, the great white throne judgment, which is a thousand and seven years distant, so to speak, from where we are talking here, those people haven't even been raised yet. The lost haven't been raised to face judgment. The judgment seat of Christ, the subject of it is believers, and what is going on is not so much a determination of their salvation as much as an accounting insofar as the works done in the body and rewards and so that's our next question and our next question is what what really is the judgment seat of Christ well here's a simple answer it's the time when Christ reckons with his people concerning their works a moment ago I said that we talk about the judgment seat of Christ or sometimes we refer to the bema sometimes people say the bema seat ever heard that okay I'm not going to quibble with you. I'll just tell you you're saying the seat seat because that's what Greek, the Greek bema, that's what it means is seat. But it's a particular kind of seat, so you really don't need to say the bema seat. You can say the judgment seat, and that's fine because those two words are a good translation of bema in Greek, bema. But if you say the bema seat, you've basically just said the seat seat. Probably no one will know, so don't worry too much, but... If you're a stickler for details, just so you know, that's what's going on with the, the term. But talking about the term is a little helpful, just like this morning, taking a little time to talk about the background of rapture and how we get that word and the imagery of the harpies snatching people up and the translation that we have in the King James Version to catch up or to catch away helps that fix that in our mind. Well, there's some biblical background on the bema, or the judgment seat that we really know better than maybe we think we know. So I want to take you to a couple of places in Acts. I want to ask you to turn, but these verses I think are pretty familiar, and all of these concern the Apostle Paul. Did you know the Apostle Paul wound up before several bemas, before several judgment seats? For example, when Paul was at Corinth in Acts chapter 18 and verse 12, here's what the Bible says, and when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, so means he was the Roman official, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him unto the judgment seat, the Bema. Verse 16 says, after it tells us in the intervening verses that Gallio got upset with the Jews because he determined that there was really no criminal matter with Paul. It was just a bunch of disputings that the Jews had about their own religion. And he said, 
he was not going to be a party to any of those types of things. It would be different if Paul had been guilty of a crime, of a criminal matter. And so verse 16 says, he drove them from the judgment seat. Good for him. That day justice got done. Those Jews were driven away because he saw right through what they were doing and saw that it really wasn't a criminal matter and that they should have never brought Paul before his judgment seat. Acts chapter 25 and verse 6, Paul got handed off to some other Roman officials. So during the time that he is in what we, was in what we call the Caesarean imprisonment, that is in the city of Caesarea, he first had Felix. You remember how that unfolded? That uh, Claudius Lysias, who was the, in charge of the Antonia fortress in Jerusalem when that great riot occurred, he whisked Paul away. Paul's nephew found out that they were going to try to kill Paul. And so in the night, uh, Felix, uh, I'm sorry, Claudius Lysias, not wanting to have a Roman citizen be killed by a mob and be called up into judgment himself because of this, whisks Paul away in the, in the middle of the night, sends him to Caesarea to stand before the man who is the procurator of Judea at that time, a man by the name of Felix. The Jews send down their best lawyer, they send Robert Mueller down. <laughs> and uh, all of a big team, you know, they, they, their hitman is a guy by the name of Tertullus, and he shows up with all of his flowery words. And then Paul doesn't need flowery words, he just says what's true, and Felix says, hmm. Same thing really Gallio was saying. Felix basically knows this person hasn't done anything wrong according to Roman law. He really shouldn't be here. And this thing drags on and drags on and drags on. And because he's a politician, he's not willing to take the stand and take the heat from the Jews and do the right thing and release Paul. So he leaves him there on hold until the next man comes in in his room, who's a man by the name of who? Festus. And Festus doesn't know what to do with Paul either. He's a hot potato. Festus is very glad when King Agrippa and his wife come one day where he can have Agrippa listen to Paul because he wants something to write. Paul has now gotten frustrated, realizes judgment is not going to be meted out to him, appeals to Caesar. We find our verse in Acts chapter 25, verse 6, and says, And when he tarried among them more than ten days, he went down unto Caesarea, and the next day sitting on the judgment seat, there's the bema, commanded Paul to be brought. Now, does this ring a bell with anything that's happened to you before? Ever been to a courtroom trial? To observe or sit on a jury or called as a witness? Uh, no on the observe, yes on the other two for me. Well, when you go into the Huntington County courtroom and Judge Zanuck or Judge Kurtz is providing over a proceeding, they're on a place that's higher. That's all very intentional, and it's really a carryover from this whole idea that we have here. The judge is sort of on an elevated platform. He's sitting up there. There's um, something of a psychology in that, you know. He's in control of the courtroom. And if you have to come stand before him, that's exactly the situation. Have you ever had a speeding ticket and had to do the same thing? Yes. I have. It's uncomfortable. You know, you're, you're standing there. I, hmm. I won't knock on wood. That doesn't really seem like a Christian gesture, but 
I've never had a speeding ticket in Pennsylvania. I'm just hoping I make it the balance of the course. Because, you know, no matter how hard you try, there's going to be those times, aren't there? And so I've just counted my blessings because the Lord, uh, he knows I try, I guess, but you can't really ever say you're not going to have it happen sometime, but I'm grateful it never has. It's just ruins your day. <laughs> you know what it just does? And then if you have to go down there and stand before the judge, you know, and I had it happen in Greenville, South Carolina. I had it ha- happen in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. And I had it happened in Charleston County, South Carolina, three in all in 64 years. I, I'm be glad if I'm done. It never was any fun, but you get the feeling, right? You know, you kind of stand there before your honor, and it's not a real good feeling. You, you get the idea of what the judgment seat is. And so that's why Paul, in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, says, for we shall all up. Uh, so it says, so then every one of us shall stand before. He says, that's what he says in Romans chapter 14 and 10, for we shall all stand before. And that's why you have that terminology, because we stand before Jesus at that time, just like you would and just like Paul did in those verses that I gave there. And we will give an account at that point. Romans 14, 12, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, that passage we read a moment ago, says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But I'll tell you, that's almost a little too tame of a translation because the word appear there is actually the word phanerao in Greek, and it doesn't just mean that you make an appearance. It means something a whole lot more than you make an appearance. It means that you are made manifest. That is really uncomfortable. Because when we do stand before Jesus, it's more than just standing there and making an appearance. You know, if, if you do that in an earthly courtroom, many times these uh, folks are very savvy. They've seen a lot of people. The policeman's heard all the excuses, you know, all that. And they, they can many times look right through you. But still, there are some people who are not transparent. But in the day that you and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's more than just making an appearance. It's actually being made manifest. That is, Jesus will know and does know everything about us, about the deeds that were done in the body, whether they are good or bad, what our motives were in doing those things. And he knows all that. And there, there's no sense in trying to put on airs because he knows all of that. John Calvin actually had a very interesting say about thing to say, a, a quotation about this very thought. He said, those are fools who depend on man's estimation so as to reckon it enough to be approved by men. That is, if people speak well of you is not enough. He continued, for then only will the work have praise and recompense when it has stood the test of that day. So, Bema. What takes place at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, it's the time when Christ reckons with his people concerning their works. And the focus is the things done in the body, as it says there in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 14 refers to works. If any man's work shall abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. The things done in the body, works is what are being evaluated there at the judgment seat of Christ. Third word is when. So when is the judgment seat of Christ? No verse in the Bible answers that question as explicitly to time. 
So why is it then that we come along and we say, well, it's, I mean, most of the time when you read studies on this, um, premillennial, pre-tribulational Bible teachers will almost invariably tell you that almost assuredly the answer is at the rapture sometime there uh, after we are raptured and we are uh, there before the Lord sometime then, but before we return to the earth and the second coming occurs. So do they just sort of make that up because they can't figure, figure out a better answer? Are they also presuming on the Bible and giving answers where we don't really have verses to supply answers? Or is there a reason they say this? And the latter is true. There is a reason why Bible students agree that that is probably the best answer that we can give. In heaven, shortly after the resurrection or shortly after the, re the rapture of the church, so why do we say that? Well, there are several verses, and again, I just want to read these for you, but they seem to associate rewards with the resurrection of believers and the return of Christ at the rapture. And I think you'll get this, so listen. Romans, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. But when thou makest a feast, he says, call the poor, the maim, the lame, the blind, and when thou, thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. When is that? That's at the rapture. We just saw that this morning, correct? So there's a verse that directly links the timing of this. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time come until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, hearts and then shall every man have praise of God when is that when the Lord comes and Revelation 22 and verse 12 is very very clear on this when Jesus says and behold I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be so when is this taking place well it's taking place when Jesus comes and we understand this to be the rapture that he's speaking of there because of that's when the resurrection of the just occurs. So other than that, we really can't be more specific. I don't know that we need to be, quite frankly, but it gives us some idea of when this tucks in to um, the things yet unfolding. And now let's take a look at the last question for tonight then, and that is how. I, because... Um, we have enough time to do this without really needing to run over a whole lot tonight, but this, I think, is really the one that concerns us most because what we're really interested in knowing is how does the judgment seat of Christ work? How does the Lord evaluate our works? The outcome and how the Lord does that are probably, that probably our most pressing issues, questions we have. Here's the answer. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uses the image of fire. So look at verse 13. He says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Right away we get very, very nervous. Why? Because we know that in a context of judgment, fire is also used when the lost are spoken of. And it's an image there for suffering. When uh, unbelievers stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment, their sentence will be to be remanded forever to the lake of fire. 
that's an image of eternal suffering. When we turn to a place like Luke chapter 16, the rich man died, and in hell or Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torments. He complained that he was tormented in this, what was the next word? Flame. So this makes us nervous because, and rightly so, we associate fire with judgment and we associate fire with suffering. Question, does that mean that that's the only thing that fire might be an image for, suffering? And the answer to that is no. Fire is capable of meaning or symbolizing something more. And Paul answers that clearly in this passage. We just need to settle our hearts, let the Bible settle our hearts. See it in the Bible, and then your heart can be settled. It wasn't just that the preacher said it. It wasn't just that you heard it in Sunday school. I see this in the Bible with my own two eyes. Look at verse uh, 13 again. For, and the fire shall, right at the end, what's the next word, word say? Try. So the fire is a symbol for testing or trial, which is exactly what's going on here. He is evaluating our works of what sort they are. Are they good? According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, or are they bad? Now that scares some people too. Oh, well you mean I'm going to be standing there and I'm going to have to answer for my sins because it says are they good or bad? And once again the Greek helps us out a little bit. Probably if we had translated bad there worthless it would have taken away that apprehension because that's what phallos in Greek means. It means worthless. It doesn't mean morally bad. Okay? It's just take my word. It's just not the word for moral evil. It's the word for something that's worthless. And what is in a building material, in a building program, if you build with wood, hay, and stubble, what are those things? They're worthless. Right? And so the fire comes along and it purges away those things that are worthless and it leaves those things that it cannot harm. The gold, the silver, and the precious stones. They can only be refined by the fire. So Here's an example of something that we say all the time, and it might even help us to understand this a little better tonight. You know the expression in, in that we have, the acid test. We say that's the acid test. Know anything about the background of that expression, where it came from? Well, it came from actually figuring out what's gold and what's not. Because years ago, people figured out that a lot of things resemble gold, especially things like fool's gold. And if you were kind of fast on your feet and shifty, you might be able to pass off to something to somebody as gold when it's really not gold. And so they developed a test. Um, and the test was you would take something that was purported to be gold and you had a black stone that you would rub that up against. Then you would apply the acid to the residue left on the black stone of the, of the supposed gold. If the acid ate it up and it was, totally, it was just gone, it was never gold because you know what? Gold is what is referred to as a noble metal. Acid can't hurt it. If it remained and was untouched, unfazed, so to speak, by the acid, it was shown to be gold. 
That's where we get the expression, the acid test. Well, so in this passage, the fire is the acid test. That's all, it's a, it's a symbol or an image or a metaphor for that. Paul tells us this, see it in the Bible. Let it settle your heart. Not what I said, see it in the Bible. The fire shall try. Doesn't say anything about suffering. In fact, it's very clear that it says at the end, the only suffering that goes on is loss, but it says believers will be saved. Yet so is by fire, and our expression for that would basically be by the skin of your teeth. In other words, if you haven't lived for Jesus and you don't have anything to show for your life for him, you're going to be saved because you've got the foundation. But you won't have much to show for the life you lived, and in that sense there will be a loss, but it has nothing to do with salvation. You don't lose your salvation. You don't lose your soul. You're not there to answer for your sins. Thank God, isn't this great? I mean, it doesn't give us license to live in a way that is displeasing to the Lord because this really matters. But you're not there to face your sins ever again. You'll never face your sins if you're saved tonight. I am really glad for that. Because I've got enough in the past... And I don't necessarily get through a day without that problem, do you? I mean, I wish it were so. But I think, really, I mean, we grow in grace, and, and I'm thankful for that. I'm glad I don't necessarily do things or think things like I used to, but I also think that the more you grow and the more you walk with the Lord, the more sensitive you become, and so you're just aware of the fact that it's an ongoing problem and you see more about yourself and you see more about your own heart and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and so you still feel like a worthless sinner because that's all we are and it's only by God's grace that we have any claim to an inheritance in Christ much less a reward so this is how it works so those that remain result in reward but those that are purged away they have no val value and the result is a loss of reward i said a minute ago you know this is really this really matters the reason i say this is because i know we have some teenagers here tonight and some who are younger and i just want to confess how I, the thought processes that i had as a new believer uh, i don't know i was probably 16 or so and I think I've told you this before of how uh, there was a, a neighbor and he gave me a ride to school every day because we lived had moved out to the country and we were about 20 miles from town and and so my dad uh, went to work a different way and the neighbor was leaving at a better time and so it was a, a good arrangement we had it was convenient to everybody and I spent all that time in that car with that man and yeah, he was a believer, and he didn't always know the answer to all my questions, but he talked to me about these things, and one day I asked him a question, because, you know, they're talking about this subject, and we're all interested, even when we're not saved, we tend to be interested in future things, and I said, well, so what's the big deal if you lose a reward or two? And I guess my thought processes were, well, you're in heaven, aren't you? What more do you want? But this really matters, folks, because, you know, one day we are going to stand before the Lord, and it's going to matter. It's going to matter when we realize that we passed up so many opportunities to serve him, so many opportunities that are, you, can't, you can't reclaim opportunity. Once you lose it, it's gone. You can only live for the future. And so 
those that remain result in reward and those that are purged away, that is, they're worthless. What are the rewards? Well, again, you could preach a separate sermon on this or you could preach five. Um, I don't plan to do either of those tonight, but some people make a lot of distinctions and they talk about five crowns. This is where we talk about the Stephanoi, the, the, the victor's crowns. Uh, in the ancient world, the, the wreath or the at the Olympics, the medal hung around your neck, that type of thing, the rewards. And uh, so in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25, talks about the incorruptible crown. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 19 talks about the crown of rejoicing. 2 Timothy 4, 8 talks about the crown of righteousness. James 1, 12 talks about the crown of life. And second, or 1 Peter 5, 4 talks about the crown of glory that fadeth not away. These are in store for those of us who have anything that when the Lord, we stand before the Lord, we have something that the Lord finds worthy. I want to take you back to a little story, probably somewhat unknown, but I think even if we don't follow a lot of sports, and, and I have to admit that that's myself, a story that you encounter from time to time, it reaches out. In fact, um, I was just looking a little bit before I came to church tonight, and I probably some people watched the game. I'm sure my son was glued, maybe coach watched. But <laughs> I see this thing about LeBron James and another buzzer beater shot. And uh, who saw that? <laughs> coach put his hand up, I figured. And so I'm looking at this thing, you know, and I, I couldn't help. I couldn't resist it. I had to see this, even though I don't really follow basketball that much. I followed it more when my son was, was here and was playing it because, you know, it was kind of his thing in baseball. I went and watched his baseball games. but So I clicked on this thing, and I'm watching LeBron James with this shot. Somehow I missed that the game was tied when he took the shot, and I couldn't figure it out because the scoreboard, I'm looking at this thing, and I see the time run out, and the scoreboard says 103 to 105. But they're saying he won the game for him with the buzzer beater shot. And, of course, I had to watch the buzzer beater shot a couple of times, and of course the tape showed it from about 87,000 angles. You know how that is, and I thought, oh, wow, I just don't see how people can do those things. But they do them, and they just, they're stunning, really. So I, I texted John, and I said, what's the deal with this buzzer beater shot? Because I knew he would know. And, you know, I said, how did that, how work? You know, was, this, was it a three-pointer? He said, no, it was a two-pointer. That's all he gave me. So I said, well, then how did, how did he win the game for him? He said, well, it was tied. I said, oh, and so then he finally told me it was 103 to 103 till he scored that shot. Then it was 103 to 105, and they won the game. Oh, okay, dense dad. I got it now. I figured it out. I guess the scoreboard changed, and the guy was fast on the scoreboard, and it, it got changed to the final score before I figured out what was going on. So... These rewards are like that. They're like those wreaths that they gave then, or as you, you know, but here's a story for you. In 1993, in the NCAA Division II track and field championships, you have a 6.2 mile course or run for this, and the, the course, of course, had been laid out by the officials, uh, the race officials, so um, they're going along, and towards the end of the course, one of the runners, he's, he's kind of actually in the middle of the pack of people running, and he sees the main group, since he's in the middle, he sees the, the whole group in front of him go off on a 
direction that was wrong. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing the guy's name right or not, but Mike DeCalvo, DelCalvo of Western State College in Colorado, he saw that what was happening and he hollered at these people and tried to tell them, no, don't go that way, go this way. And he went that way because he saw what was, was happening. And he was waving for these people to see what was happening and to follow him and telling them this is the right way. That's what he later said to the interviewer. Turned out he was right. It also turned out only four of the runners followed him. Everybody else took that alternate, which was in fact a shortcut. Well, when it was over, this was an extremely uh, well, uh, widely criticized decision. The race officials allowed the abbreviated course to stand as the official course. And Del Calvo, when, when he came in, he finished 123rd. Well, what do you say to that? Doesn't sound fair, does it? Of course, I'm not there. I didn't have to determine all that, but it seemed like it doesn't seem fair. And I, I just go back to, I remember as a little kid complaining to my mother, that's not fair. <laughs> and her saying, life's not fair. And that's the way this world is, you know. Some things just aren't fair in this life. It, it just, it's a broken world, right? But it's not that way with the Lord, and the official course is what matters with the Lord, and you find that right here in the handbook. It tells you what the official course is. He rewards according to obedience to this. That's the test. That's the standard. And so that's, it really is going to matter one day, folks, because obviously the great concern then will be what we built with and how. Because he ends this passage by saying, if any man's work shall be burned, he himself shall suffer loss. Then it says, verse 2017, I'm sorry, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Which sounds very scary to us, but Paul was worried about these people coming into Corinth. He was worried about false teachers coming into Corinth. He was worried about people adding to the foundation that he laid, which was Jesus Christ, something else and you know if you were with the series in second corinthians that jack completed a bit back he had all these false apostles and false teachers to contend with so he uses very strong language about somebody who would come in and put something on that foundation that's not correct but there is an application to us god is not going to destroy us but it is very important that what we build with is stuff that lasts for eternity and I wanted to ask you to consider these words tonight. This is a little piece that's entitled, When I Stand at the Judgment Seat. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, had he had his way, and I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there, and I would not yield my will, shall I see grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still? Oh, he'd have me rich, and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while my memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I can't retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears I cannot shed. I'll cover my face with empty hands and bow my uncrowned head. No, Lord, of the years that are left to me, I yield them to thy hand. Take me, make me, mold me, 
to the pattern thou hast planned. Alexander McLaren wrote this, the judgment seat is meant for us professing Christians, real and imperfect Christians, and it tells us there are degrees in that future blessedness proportioned to present faithfulness. Think about that. Think about that. Degrees in that future blessedness proportioned to present faithfulness. And may God just encourage us tonight. We are all imperfect here tonight, you know. We all have a lot of ground yet to cover. But may this reminder of the judgment seat of Christ, you and I, if we know Jesus, we're all going to appear. We're all going to be made manifest. We're all going to stand there. May it not be a day of regret. May it be a day in which we can lay our crowns back at Jesus' feet and give him praise for all that his grace was able to accomplish in us and through us.